0: All right, I'm going to tell y'all the story of my life before we start. You ready? Actually, I'm just going to tell you some of the places that I've lived. Okay, I was born uh, and my folks lived in Mullins. Anybody know where Mullins is? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So we lived in Mullins and then when I was 11 months old, we moved to Helen. And I lived in Helen until I was 22 married my lovely wife, and we moved to Beaver. Okay, so then we found a house to rent in Coal City. And after that, we left Coal City, and we moved to... Well, we moved in with the in-laws for just a little piece, and then we were in Hohenwald, Tennessee. Anybody ever heard of Hohenwald, Tennessee? That's what I thought. (laughs) Sounds like hole-in-the-wall, but it's (laughs) Hohenwald. It's a German word. For High Forest, Hohenwald. We were there 11 months, oddly enough, and came back and were with the in laws again, whom we've been a constant burden to throughout our sojournings. Left their house and moved to Beckley, West Virginia. Left Beckley and 11 and a half years ago moved back to Helen. Now, I don't think. There's anybody in the world that has that same history. I don't know anybody else in the world who's ever lived in Helen and Hohenwald. Okay? So that's I'm I'm probably the only person in the world to have ever lived in both Helen and Hohenwald. Now that's that's a unique identifier to me. <clears throat> So if, if, if ever you're playing Trivial Pursuit and, they, and the question is who's the only person to have ever lived in Helen West Virginia and Hohenwald, Tennessee, I'm the answer. Okay? There's a man she, she wasn't born in Helen, though. Wasn't born there. I live there now. That's true. So. She got there as quick as she could. She did get there as quick as she could. So I'm not exclusive. Now there's two of us. So, okay, I, I've lived in Helen twice and Hohenwald, Tennessee. Unique identifiers. You know, actually, it's funny. We think we've got like this um, anonymity in today's culture, but let me tell you what, you don't. No. You don't. They know so much about you, by the way, that where your phone goes during the day and how many times you drive through the toll booth. and Actually, they say that 87% of people can be uniquely identified by three pieces of information. You know what they are? Your date of birth. Your zip code and your gender. Not many people in Helen, West Virginia have the birth date of 121273 and are males. Just me. Again, unique. So there's a lot of ways that we can be identified, especially in today's culture. And of course, most of you have a social security number. That's yours. Nobody else has that number. So, unique identifiers is what we're talking about this morning. And we're going to talk about how that ties into God's plan. We've talked a lot about God's plan over the last couple months, haven't we? I've said those words, God's plan, a lot. And I know as I've prepared for music, as Dave's prepared for music over that period of time, um, God's plan has been prevalent in our preparation. I just saw that this morning. Um, So this morning we want to talk about God's plan, the uniqueness of it, and variables that are going to make, in our case this morning... Jesus Christ unique. Now there's a lot of things that make him unique, but this morning we're going to see something kind of like my journey from Helen to Hohenwald and back. <laughs> That's my autobiography title right there. From Helen to Hohenwalden back. So <clears throat> but we're going to see uh, some identifiers and the sojournings of the infant Jesus that make him unique in history. Uh, again, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to read the whole chapter, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. Last week we focused on verses 1 through 12. I'd say this evening. You can do it this evening if you want to. But this morning we're going to focus on verses 13 through 23. So if you would, please stand as we read what we know and believe and cling to as the very words of God. Matthew chapter 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was." when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "'Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt.' And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. He was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me pray. God, your way is perfect. Your plan is perfect. And I pray that as we sit under the teaching of Your Word this morning, God, that Your Holy Spirit would perform miracles in our lives to draw us to You, maybe for the first time. God, that You'd convict us of our sins and show us our need of a Savior and show us through this Word today that Jesus Christ is that Savior. God, help us to understand what You would have us to know from this teaching this morning for Your glory. We ask in Jesus' name and amen. You may be seated. Or you can stand the whole time. I don't really care. That's up to you. You can be the only person who ever stood through a whole message if you ever want to be. So we'll start with verse 13, like I said. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now we need to revisit some of what we saw last week in order to take this in a little better. For those of you that weren't with us, we saw last week that wise men or magi had come uh, to pay homage to Jesus sometime after His birth. They were not at the uh, stable. Uh, it, it would have been a time later. Um, but they came and they came for one very distinct purpose and that was to worship the newborn king. And they did so. These people, these magi, were powerful people. They were king-appointers in Persia in what was now the Parthian Empire to the east of Israel and Judea. And again, when they showed up, they showed up with secret service detail. They showed up with full army. And Herod was freaking out because the king-appointers showed up And they said, we've come to worship him who has been called the king of the Jews. Well, Herod was real nervous about losing his rule. And right here near the end of his life, he was even more nervous. And so now we've got king appointers showing up. And they're saying, we've come to worship the newborn king who will be the king of the Jews. Well, Herod was not very happy about that. Um, When they show up looking for a king, Herod talks to them and asks them to find this newborn king. We read that just now. And report back to him, which they do not do, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. So they had followed the God-sent star to Bethlehem where Jesus was born and they followed the direction of God out of that same town. They knew the ancient writings and had heard the chief priests and scribes telling Herod that that the coming king of the Jews was to be born in Bethlehem. The prophecy had come from Micah. And was clearly specific in saying that Bethlehem was the foretold birthplace. No questions. This coming king, this Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. By the way, I was born in Beckley, Moved to Mons. Okay, just so you know. We talked about worship and warfare and waste and how we should respond to Jesus in the same way as the Magi did. Now, here in verse 13, we start by seeing, by seeing now when they had departed. This, of course, refers to the Magi. After they leave an angel from God appears to Joseph like an angel had before to tell him to take Mary as his wife and as one had come to and told the magi not to go back to Herod. So there's a lot of angelic dream talking going on here. And listen, that's not normal. Okay? There's some crazy supernatural stuff going on at this time because God was coming into the world. And it's like he's got to come down and hold our hands. Okay? Cuz we're Finite. Okay? So he's making sure, and that's going to be very important that you understand that. He's making sure that his plan gets carried out. We've talked about him having a plan, but he's making sure, mouth to ear, do this. And he's being very specific. Okay, So this angel tells Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That's pretty specific, right? Angel shows up in a dream, tells Joseph to get up and take Jesus and Mary to Egypt. It's always the child and his mother, by the way. It's interesting. Herod was seeking to kill the child and God was mobilizing His caretakers of His son to remove Jesus from harm. Making sure that was going to happen. But why Egypt? If you go back, we did a study through the intertestamental period. We said that Alexander the Great had stormed through Israel and had went down into Egypt and established the city of Alexandria. He was a humble guy, right? Named the whole city after himself. And that he took a lot of Jews with him to Alexandria and that's where they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And Alexandria specifically and Egypt in general had kind of become a safe haven for Jews. They would flee to Egypt. And so... When they were persecuted, they'd go to Egypt. And this continued through into the time of our account today with thousands of Jews fleeing Herod and his impetuousness and his fury. And the historian Philo, P-H-I-L-O, Philo estimated that there were probably near a million Jews in Egypt at the time. So one little family coming to Egypt wouldn't have been weird or out of place and they could settle into a pretty normal Jewish life there. So again, you see the consistent work and plan of God throughout history to prepare for this time period, which Paul would call in Galatians the fullness of time. Now Alexander the Great didn't know more than 300 years prior that he was paving the way for Jesus to come into Egypt and be safe. But God knew because God had a plan. And note, God knew of Herod's plan, which was pretty crummy by the way. God wasn't surprised, and we shouldn't be surprised, that sinner's sin. And God had already made provisions for it to take care of His people in the midst of it. Tuck that away. We'll get back to that later. And His people responded. God's people responded like it was foretold that they would do. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he, being Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now note Joseph's reaction to the message from the angel. It doesn't say when he rose he took the child, but rather and he rose and took the child. And the wording implies immediate reaction and obedience. He was visited in a dream. After the dream he woke up and did what he was told right then. This guy Joseph is top-notch, y'all. So he rouses Mary and says, hey, we got to go. God just told me in a dream that we got to go. Well, Mary understands that, right? Because she had an angel speak to her and say, you're going to give birth to this baby. And she knew that Joseph had been told in a dream to take her as his wife. So she doesn't question. She literally looks like complies right then and there. And at night, by night, they hit the road to Egypt. Now why Egypt? Now we've already talked basically about there being a safe haven for Jews. But Egypt, because first and foremost, that's the plan that God had orchestrated. God's prophet Hosea had said in Hosea 11.1 1, that God had called His Son out of Egypt. Look at this. When Israel was a child, I loved Him, Hosea says, and out of Egypt I called My Son. But now wait a second. Why is Matthew quoting this as a prophecy fulfilled in the time of Jesus? Hosea's verse has God saying, saying that this is something that He had already done. And Hosea prophesied in the late 700s BC and the exodus of Israel out of Egypt took place around 900 years before that. So what's going on here? In Hosea, the son that God called out of Egypt was who? Who? In Hosea. What's it say? When Israel was a child. The nation Israel is the son that God's referring to here in Hosea, right? That's clear. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So in Matthew, the son that's being referred to is who? Jesus. Okay? So what's, what's going on here? Which is it? Is it Israel or is it Jesus? Yep, yes. And the answer is yes. Thank you all. Y'all know me too well. <laughs> Hosea was referring to Israel, but listen to me. Israel finds his, its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Amen. The very existence of Israel was a precursor or a type of Jesus who was to come. Jesus fulfills what they signified being God's chosen vessel... Jesus being the Passover lamb, Jesus being the tabernacle, and on and on and on. So as Israel went to Egypt and God called them out, Jesus literally went to Egypt and was called out by God. Now Hosea thought that the past event was the, was the final fulfilling event of the prophecy, but it was actually a forecast of what was to come at an even later date. So Matthew being divinely inspired, like the Old Testament prophet was, tells us that Jesus was the ultimate and final fulfillment of this prophetic word. God's plan was always that He would call His literal son out of Egypt. And He forecasted that through Hosea, who surely did not know the fullness of what he was saying. Hosea didn't know. He was talking about Israel. And he didn't know that God had a plan beyond just Israel. So this brings up an interesting point about interpreting Scriptures in general. And prophecy specifically. Found some really great information. There's a Messianic Jew, Jew a messianic Jew named David H. Stern. And the book that I have by him is actually a Jewish commentary on the New Testament. Interesting insight. What he says is, there were four methods for Scripture interpretation used by Jewish rabbis. Four. The English words for these four methods are... Voila! These are the English words. Simple, hint, search, and secret. Let me give you a brief explanation. I do mean brief. The simple method says that you take the plain, literal meaning of the text and apply it to the prophecy. So God says He'll send His people into Egypt for a time to Abraham, and He does just that. So that's simple, right? The second method is hint. And things get a little trickier here. In the hint method... A word or phrase may point to something not explicitly said by the text. Here, even the writer might not be aware of what's being said ultimately, kind of like what we see with Hosea. The third method is search, and it's when the person reading the the passage presses their thoughts or their personal interpretation onto the passage. The Jewish rabbis would do this. We call this eisegesis, which is opposed to exegesis. Exegesis is when you go into the text and ask what does it mean and then present what it means. Eisegesis is I think it means this and you read it into the text. Okay, So that's kind of what search is like. The fourth method is secret and what it does, it entails finding codes and letters, numbers and words that are hidden to the average reader or it's special revelation. I know something other people don't know. Otherwise called it's called hooey, hooey, Right. <laughs> I don't know if that's a Jewish word or not. but German, I think. German, okay. <laughs> so that's secret. This would be like Bible code people or numerologist type of folks or people where everything in the Bible is not about us. It's, it's, uh, there's a higher meaning. There's a spiritual meaning that we just don't understand. That's search. So listen, the Jewish rabbis of Matthew's time would be not only familiar with these four methods of interpreting Scripture, but they would be actively participating in these four methods. Okay, So Matthew, being Jewish, knew all this. And in our text today, he seems to be using a little of the first three in his revelation about Jesus being the son that was called out of Egypt. It's kind of simple. He was called out of Egypt. There's a hint that this was not about Israel. And he had to search this out and say, Oh, this fits my narrative. Okay? But now keep this in mind. Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So he can take that liberty because he's not going to err in his hinting or his searching. You be very, very, very careful in anything besides simple. Okay? You're not inspired. You have the same Holy Spirit in you, but you are not inerrant. So be very careful to stray from anything but simple. Again, what Don said, just don't do it. So, but Matthew could do it. People today sometimes misinterpret Scripture, but Matthew did not. And people will say that Matthew misinterpreted the Scripture, but he didn't. He was as inspired as Hosea was. And if the Holy Spirit said Jesus was the Son of God that God was going to call out of Egypt, then Jesus was the Son of God that God was going to call out of Egypt. So now back to the Matthew account. Jesus is taken by Joseph and Mary into Egypt and they stay there until the death of Herod. Now we're pretty sure that Herod died around 4 BC. So if Jesus was near to because we'll get to that in a second, that's the time ascertained by Herod from the Magi. If he was around two, it may not have been very long that they were in Egypt. So If he was born in 5 or 6 B.C., Jesus was born before Christ. We talked about that last week. You'll have to listen to the recording. And Herod died in 4 B.C., he probably wasn't there very long. But even if they were there very long, like I said before, there was plenty of Jews living in Egypt, so they would have blended right in and been safe there. But safe from what? Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, there you go, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. I really just like to say ascertained. It's a lot of fun. So we don't know how long Herod waited for the Magi to come back to him. But after some time, he's like, hmm, they ain't coming back, are they? Well, what he does not say is, well, shoot, they got me. Actually, it was much more intense. He sees that he was tricked, or the literal meaning of that word tricked is to be or become embarrassingly deceived, making one open to laughter or ridicule. Now, how do you think old Herod felt about that? Hmm? He didn't like it too much. It says that he became furious, which is pretty much self-explanatory. John MacArthur points out that the verb here for "became furious" is it became yeah became furious is actually a passive verb. It's in the passive tense, which means that Herod was not choosing to be mad. The anger came upon him and acted upon him. He was made to be furious. So, what do you think he does with this furiousness? He decides, I'm going to kill some babies. Actually, he's not going to. Now, how many of y'all get mad? I'm going to kill some babies. That's the kind of person we're talking about here. He figures, well, since the Magi said that they were coming to worship the king of the Jews and saw his star at such and such a time, and the chief priests and scribes said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, well, then we'll just kill all the babies in Bethlehem that were born in that time period, which he figures is two years old and younger. Why take a chance? Let's just kill them all. Again, that's the kind of guy that we're dealing with here with Herod. And note, it's not just Bethlehem, but Bethlehem and in all that region. He pretty much uses a shotgun to shoot a gnat. He will not stand for any threat to be viable to his rule, even a two-year-old baby. Herod figured he deserved to have the life that he wanted, not the life that a child would enforce on him. So he just, uh, he just took a broad shot. He knew that some infants might fit into the general demographic of the infant that was described by the Magi. So he says, let's just kill them all. And now that's terrible and I can't fathom it. And I certainly don't mean to say that, I'm about, that what I'm about to say makes it any better. But I think it's important to note that scholars and historians note that the number of children killed would have been about 15 or 20. Okay. Bethlehem and the region around it just didn't have a whole lot of people, so there wouldn't have been a large number of infant boys there. Now that doesn't make it right, but it does give us the right picture instead of thinking about thousands and thousands of baby corpses. okay? And I only point that out because there's no historical record of this slaughter outside of the Bible, which is historical, but there's no secular historians who say there was that time Herod killed all those babies. But given Herod's other furies and the scope of them having 10, or 12, 10, 12, 20 babies killed could kind of miss the radar of the non-biblical world. They would have yawned at it. It shows, if anything, the brutality of Herod more than anything else. Now, verses 17 and 18 point to those who surely did know that this slaughter happened. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we see another prophecy mentioned as being fulfilled here. It comes from Jeremiah 31:15 and it's much closer to a word for word quote. What Jeremiah was referring to was the exile of the nation of Israel into Assyria in the 700s BC. Rama, which is a word for height, the height of Bethlehem is what the, the Rama of Bethlehem is what this is really referring to, the height Rama in Bethlehem was the place where the conquered people of Israel were gathered to in order to begin their march to Assyria. So all the exiles gathered in Ramah and they started their march toward Assyria. And Jeremiah refers to what would be a forthcoming event in his time by picturing Rachel who was Jacob's favorite wife and who had mothered Joseph and Benjamin as rising from the dead and weeping over the deportation. Now why? Why Rachel? Because she was actually buried in Bethlehem. If you travel to Israel today, they'll say, there's Rachel's tomb. They'll point it out to you. So where they gather to be deported, Rachel's buried. So Jeremiah says when they're deported, Rachel's going to rise and weep for her children because they're leaving from Ramah of Bethlehem, which is the very place being mentioned here. It's like she came out of the grave and wept for the tragedy being described. So again, what Matthew does, he takes an event that was foretold in the past and happened in the past and says it was ultimately fulfilled by what happened here hundreds of years later. Because here, the mothers in Bethlehem who embody the spirit of Rachel weep for their children who literally are no more because they're dead. It's a powerful picture that shows the raw emotion of the tragedy and the prophetic importance of it. So now what? 19 through 21. Behold, when Herod died, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So again, we don't know how long it was, but sometime after Jesus and his earthly family went to Egypt, Herod died. It might have been a few months, might have been a year or so, we don't know. Now, Sidebar here, we also don't know anything of what happened in Egypt. We don't know. The Bible mentions nothing of Jesus' childhood outside of a very few details like this one. Very general. His birth, His presentation in the temple, the Magi visiting, the flight to Egypt, Him being 12 and getting left behind in Jerusalem. There's no other details. Please don't be drawn into people saying that they attribute miracles to the boy Jesus. That He turned a clay pigeon into a real pigeon. Those things are out there. Okay? They are. There's also reports that Jesus went to Egypt to learn magic. And that's where He learned all of His tricks and all of His miracles. That That's out there, y'all. Yeah, more hooey. So just don't get drawn into that stuff. Everything that, we, everything that we know about the childhood of Jesus comes from the Scriptures. Everything else is hooey. Okay? So don't be drawn into that stuff. It's just not biblical. We know that He went to Egypt and after Herod died, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream again. And this time it reports that Herod is dead and that Joseph should again rise and take the child and his mother and go back to Israel. And again, it says that Joseph got up after the dream and did what he was told. So now it's back to Israel for this Jewish family. So where would they go? They go back to Helen, right? But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Well, after Herod died... So you know, he divided his kingdom into three parts, passed those parts to his sons Archelaus, Philip and Antipas. Antipas, however you want to say. I don't know how to pronounce it right. Archelaus, Philip, Antipas. And Archelaus was appointed over Judea and Samaria, which is where Bethlehem would have been. Well, this Archelaus was as bad as, if not worse, than dear old dad was. Herod called him a king, called Archelaus a king, appointed him a king, but Rome's Caesar didn't recognize Archelaus as a king and called him an intrarch, and said that he needed to prove himself before he was considered a king. So there's this thing that stirs up and Archelaus has these two popular rabbis killed and so the Jews rose up in rebellion against him and he had over 3,000 of them put to death. So word got out pretty quickly that Archelaus was no friend of the Jews. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. Now he would be replaced, by the way, not too long, by a governor appointed by Rome whose name was Pontius Pilate. That sets us up for later in the New Testament. But back to our narrative, Joseph was afraid to go live where Archelaus was ruling, so he gets warned in a dream to go somewhere else, which would have been outside of Archelaus' rule. So where... Does he go in Galilee? Verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And here we see Jesus and his family end up in Nazareth. So let me give you a picture of what that might look like. Just so you don't think that this flight to Egypt was like first class, okay? This was like coach times negative 600, okay? You see the red here. That's Bethlehem. They go down into Egypt. We don't have that part of the picture. When they come back, they go all the way up past Judea, past Israel, past Samaria, up into Galilee area. The lake is right there and a little tiny blue thing. And so they end up in Nazareth. Now, can you imagine? Anybody ever travel with a two-year-old? Anybody ever travel comfortably with a two-year-old? Teach me. Okay? Now, Jesus, you know, was he a perfect baby child? No. He hurt and he cried and he got hungry and he got hot. So imagine this trek, okay, from Jerusalem down into Egypt and then Egypt back all the way up into Jerusalem. I don't have the mileage recorded, I don't know what it is. But that's a long trek for a man, a woman, and a baby by either foot or on the back of a donkey they weren't rich enough to have a horse or a carriage. Unless the gifts from the wise men bought them one. I don't know. They had the newest model, maybe. But Nazareth was pretty much nowhere. Okay? Helen, right? If Bethlehem was not much, and that's what we said last week, Nazareth was even less. As a matter of fact, Nazareth was seen as being kind of an other side of the tracks type of place. Anybody grow up on the wrong side of the tracks? Or the right side of the tracks? This was the other side of the tracks. This was bad. Okay, If you were from Nazareth, people looked down on you and they made fun of you just because you were from Nazareth. Just to be from Nazareth meant that you would be despised. To be called a Nazarene was an insult. So why go here? Well again, God had a plan and God's plan was that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Matthew says, They went to Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that He would be called a Nazarene. Now be careful here. So let me ask you this question. What prophet said this? Where do we find this in the Old Testament? The answer is we don't. We don't. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I mean there is no Old Testament prophecy that says he would be called a Nazarene. Some people try to associate it with a couple of things about him being a branch because Nazareth meant branch, but it don't work. So has Matthew messed up here? Is he getting a little too loose? Has he found some numerology stuff in this Old Testament stuff and he's in the hooey interpretation mode? Well, if we know the Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew, we know that the answer is that there's an explanation. First, know what Matthew says. He says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. You see the plural? The prophets. He doesn't give one specific instance but says that the prophets spoke that the coming king messiah would be called a Nazarene. So Matthew implies that this means that Jesus would come from the town of Nazareth and that's exactly what happened, Right? But who prophesied it and why? Well, there's two pretty good explanations for that. First, the prophets in plural could have insinuated that the coming king would be despised like somebody from Nazareth was. We see that all through the Old Testament prophecy. I'm going to read you a couple here. Psalm 69, seven and eight, speaking of the Messiah. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach; that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Sounds like hatred and judgment, doesn't it? This somebody despising him. Now we talk about Matthew. Um, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53 a lot. How about Isaiah 53 three? He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Again, to be from Nazareth is to be despised. So this promised one would be despised like a Nazarene. Now that makes sense. Now another possible explanation of the prophets saying that the coming king would be called a Nazarene could be that the prophets had said that and it didn't get put down in our Old Testament. Not every prophecy got written down. Everything we need is there. right? And maybe some of them predicted that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. Maybe. Either way, Matthew, who we're studying today, makes it clear that there were prophecies of some sort that said a coming Nazarene would be of prophetic importance. And again, since Matthew was inspired, His recording makes it legitimate. The Holy Spirit testifies through Matthew that Nazareth was a necessary step in the prophetic plan. He shall be called a Nazarene. And He was. Just like God said. Well, this closes the book on the infancy of the king. We'll turn our attention to the king's forerunner next week. But for now, we look to application. And there's a lot we could do with this passage, but we're going to focus on three GPs for our application. One, God's plan. Two, God's people. And three, God's protection. God's plan, God's people, and God's protection. So God's plan, first application point. We've re- I said it earlier, we've really focused in on this over the past several weeks. And this passage will kind of bring that section to a close as far as bringing that up week after week. But we saw clearly today that God doesn't just have a plan, but that He's got a meticulous plan and that it's carried out to perfection. Specifically, between last week and this week, we see God being very concise in who the coming king was and where He would come from. Last week we saw that He would be born in Bethlehem. And this week we saw that He would go to Egypt, be called from there... And we saw that His coming would have repercussions in Ramah and that He would come from Nazareth. Now, how many people do you think had that exact same experience in those exact same places? Nobody. I would say only Jesus, the Messiah in His infancy, had these exact experiences in these exact locations. Birth in Bethlehem, flight to Egypt, weeping in Ramah, and growing up in Nazareth. This was Jesus' experience and it was predicted perfectly by the published plan of God. God wrote it down in minute detail. You will be in Hohenwald and you will go back to Helen. He was very specific. No loopholes here. No chance for misinterpretation. Jesus alone met the criteria and fulfilled these prophecies. And if God's people were looking for this promised Messiah, they could clearly see that Jesus meets all these qualifications and did so uniquely. That's why Matthew wrote this down. Again, Matthew's point, Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. And so he records these four prophecies and says... The king of the Jews will meet these requirements and Jesus meets these requirements. A plus B equals C. Every time. So if God's people were looking and if they're reading Matthew's words honestly, they're going to say, yeah, this Jesus is the king of the Jews. They can't avoid it. So what's our application to this? Our application in God's plan is to be diligent to know God's specific plan and to seek out who He is and what He's doing in our lives and in the world. If we know His plan, we can line up with Him and run with Him, not from Him. And He does have a plan in our day and for our lives. And it's not some weird ethereal thing out there somewhere that you've got to know the exact point where I should have been in Hohenwald and was off by a couple of months. That's not the way that God's plan works. We've said it here time and time again. God's plan for your life is not a tiny minute dot on the map like Nazareth was. God's plan for your life is a wide open field. And if you stay within the parameters of what He has prescribed, man, you can do a lot. So quit looking for the dot. Quit looking for that tiny point, that perfect will of God that you may have messed up somewhere back when you were seven and ate pizza instead of peas for dinner. And I know that sounds funny, but seriously, you know how many people have shipwrecked their walk with God because they think, well, I messed up way back there and He can never redeem it. It's wrong. God's plan for your life is a wide open space in fenced By the Word of God. And if you stay within the parameters of the Word of God, you are in the will of God. But stay in the fence because that's God's plan. And you can know God's plan when you stay in the Word. So God's plan, God's people is the second point. Now what sticks out to me from today's text is the obedience of Joseph. There's no him hauling around or reasoning or hesitation in his obedience. He was told by an angel in multiple dreams and each time he got up and did what he was told. He didn't say, well, I better pray about this just to make sure. He didn't try to figure out maybe God meant something else. How many times have you heard somebody say, I think maybe God may be leading me to possibly do something like this. What the heck? I hope you're close to possibly being maybe right. I feel led. I feel like since I missed dinner last night, I feel led that maybe I should eat something this morning. That's a good idea. He didn't have to pray about it. He didn't have to figure it out. And he didn't put off his obedience to a more opportune time. He did what God said when God said it. And so should we. But you may say, Joseph had very specific details at very specific moments from the mouth of the angel to his ear directly. I mean, God, if God spoke directly to me, I'd do what He said too, right? Guess what? Read it out loud. Yeah. Guess what? God does speak directly to us. The Bible that you read or don't read every day is God speaking directly to you. We talked about the Jewish rabbis having the four types of interpretation common to them. The simple, the hint, the search, and the secret. Remember that? Now we do have to interpret Scripture, scripture accurately for sure. And while there are surely some things that hint at things and some things that need searching and clarification and prayer, listen to me. There are more than enough direct, plain, simple commands that we can live in immediate obedience to. I've heard Alistair Begg say multiple times that the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. I could go a lot of different places in the Scripture and give examples of a lot of different direct commands, but I chose for this morning these machine gun commands. It doesn't command you to have a machine gun, but hey, Second Amendment, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Listen to this. First Thessalonians five, twelve through twenty two. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now there are 17 different direct commands in that passage that we can instantly and consistently obey. What if we did? That's enough to keep us busy obeying while we try to figure out the stuff that's a little harder to navigate and figure out, right? And if you're doing these things... A lot of times the will of God's gonna creep into your life and you're not, oh, oh, that's the will of God. I should do what's nice. I shouldn't go toward evil. Oh, I should be praying. Oh. Voila, the will of God revealed in your life. 17 very simple, direct commands. And again, these are things that don't take any mysterious pondering or questioning prayer. These things, and there's so many more like them. Biblical commands are straightforward and call for immediate Joseph-like obedience. You see, God has chosen to use people to accomplish His plan. He is brave indeed. And if you are His, please hear me say this, if you are God's, if you belong to God, you are a part of His plan. So what should you do? You should obey Him. Now, that's what God's people do. God's plan, God's people, and now we see God's protection. Now listen to me. Man, if God's people walk in God's plan... God Himself will see to it that those people are protected and empowered in such a way that it will be plain and evident to them all the way through. Now, does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to somebody who's obeying God? No, not at all. So we see this flight into Egypt. We, we saw that I wouldn't want to make that trip with a two-year-old. That probably wasn't very fun. We know how Jesus' life on earth ends, right? Bad things happen to Jesus. They mocked Him. They despised Him all of His life. They tried to trap Him in His teaching. They sought how they should kill Him. Jesus was crucified and died on the cross. But we also know that He didn't stay dead. So even His cruel death... Listen, even His cruel death was as much a part of God's plan as His birth and this flight to and back from Egypt. So don't confuse what I'm about to say with everything always being easy. This trip to Egypt and back was surely not easy for this little family, but they did it. God's people were obedient to God's plan. What I am saying is that if God's people obey God's plan, God's protection will bring God's plan to perfect, to perfect completion, which is for the ultimate good of God's people. Because what God intends to do, He does. In the face of hate, danger, death, the schemes of men and a thousand other dangerous toils and snares, God's plan and God's providence reign and rule over it all to bring about what? We sang it this morning. His glory. Everything you do is for your glory. That's what we say about God. But that's not all. Not just for His glory. That's the ultimate end, but for His glory and for our good. Hopefully your mind has instantly gone to Romans 8, 28. And I hope we're not numb to this. Listen to this. I'm going to read 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, pretty much everything... <laughs> most things, usually, if I get up on the right side of the bed and I listen, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. But that's not all. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Is there better news in the world than that right there? All things. I'm a Redskins fan, y'all. (laughs) <laughs> be all things, listen to me, all things, God is working them all together for our good to the point that we're already glorified in the <laughs> eyes of God. There's no way it's not going to happen. God's plan is not left to chance. God's people were not going to fail. Herod was not going to kill Jesus. Archelaus was not going to kill Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Jesus was going to be called out of Egypt, and Jesus was going to be called a Nazarene. Let me let y'all in on a little secret. This game is rigged, it's fixed, and we win. And that's good news. Because whatever, listen to me, whatever is going on in your life, if you belong to God, whatever is going on in your life is for your good. He has said so and it will be so. Now do we wish sometimes God had a different plan? Be very careful. We may get in a situation and say I wish it wasn't like this but I'm glad God's plan is God's plan because God's plan involves my good and His glory exclusively. Sovereignty and providence make for a perfect plan from the perfect planner. So we rejoice in this truth in all points and areas of our lives. When things happen that surprise and alarm you, remember it. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to each other. All things, all things in God's perfect plan work together for the good of God's people. That's God's protection for your life. Mary and Joseph experienced it. Jesus experienced it. And you know what? So am I. From Helen to Hohenwald and back. I've experienced the perfect plan of God. And praise God in the midst of it all, I've experienced God's people too. Which has been more of a blessing than I can even fathom. I want to finish today with a reminder of God's sovereignty. Don read this last week, but I want to bring it back up. It's just really stuck in my head. (laughs) Psalm 2 verses 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage? Think Herod. And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And God goes, oh no! He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them. In derision. He will be called a Nazarene. He will be held in derision. People will deride him. And that's God's plan. And as they bring their councils and as they plot their wars and as Herod says, I'll kill this baby, God laughs. And He holds them in derision. God's up there going, (laughs) Herod's going to kill my son. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one, Hero. You're going to split the gates of hell wide open in just a few short months. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So let me encourage you with this. When things seem to be spiraling out of control, when it looks like men and evil are having their way in your life, he who commands all things laughs. If you've not heard Stephen Lawson preach, you need to. He's got an annoying voice, but he's a great preacher. Sorry, I don't know him, but if he ever hears this recording, you're right. He says this, There is no panic in heaven, but only plans to work out His good purposes in your There is no panic in heaven, but only plans to work out His good purposes in your life. When Herod plots, when tragedy strikes, when people mock and ridicule, remember God's plan, understand that you are God's people, and trust in God's protection. He wins. And so do we. Let's pray. God, You are a marvel. You are amazing. And we just have barely scratched the surface of the infinite wealth of Your wisdom and knowledge and love and glory. Show us more. Give us more. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from Your Word, God. Open our eyes so that we can see the safe haven and the blessing that is Your people. And help us to know that though a thousand may fall at our side, though the enemy schemes and plans against me, no, I will not be moved. I will not be shaken. I will dwell in the shelter of the Most High God. No weapon formed against me will prosper. I will rest in the beauty of your presence. Your faithfulness is a shield and my great reward. I will not be afraid. I will trust in the Lord. God, thank you for the perfect plan that we see lived out through the infancy of Jesus. That's just a taste of what's coming. Give us eyes to see and hearts to receive even more. And then give us hands and feet to go out and do it by the power of your Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive a benediction as we finish here. And by the way, uh, Orlando has asked for provisional membership with us. So we're going to go over documents with him today. We hope to sign those papers next week. Anybody else thinking about that? You college folks that are here for a while. Provisional membership is just that while you're here... You're under our oversight and you submit to that and we get to be blessed by you. So uh, keep that in mind. Be praying about that. So receive this benediction, which is not really a benediction, but it's good. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him... And through Him and to Him all are all things. To Him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.